pray in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. Be seated. Grab your Bible. Turn to John chapter 11. John 11. If you remember last week, we were in John 11, and we finished the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, and now we're kind of, kind of going to conclude uh, here the, the story of Lazarus, and there's going to be several things we're going to see, I think very interesting things, and my goal is to read from 1145, eventually we'll land in chapter 12, verse 11, and I want to give you four applications from the text. There's so much here, but we're going to try to study it a little bit and bring out four applications to help us as we go through these, these lives that we're, we're living now. So uh, if you found chapter 11 and verse 45, would you say word? Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him. But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we do? For this man does many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. And the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, you know nothing at all, nor consider that it is, it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. And this spoke he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. And not for that nation only, but also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Then from that day they took counsel together for to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, walked no more openly among the Jews, but went thence unto a country near the wilderness, into a city called Ephraim, and there continued with his disciples. And, and the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand, and many went out, out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then sought they for Jesus, and spake among themselves, as they stood in the temple, What think ye, or what do you think? that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment that if any man knew where he were, he should show it that they might take him. Let's stop here for now, and we will begin to consider some of these thoughts here as we conclude chapter 11. And as you heard the first thing I said there, and really it's not a surprise, after Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead, who Lazarus, Lazarus was in the grave how many days? Four days, Jesus comes, he brings him back to life. And do you think word began to spread about that miracle? Of course, word began to spread and people began to come and see what's going on. And I'm sure they, they show up and ask what happened. And they wanted, I'm sure, talk to Lazarus, talk to his sisters, Mary and Martha, and to see what had happened. So some people were excited. And, and it says there that many believed in him. But the very next verse says, we also have a bunch of tattletales in the group. And they ran to tell the Pharisees, look what Jesus had done. And so what I see here in this section of Scripture is something that, you know, we've maybe hinted at in the previous chapters, or at least hinted towards. And what we see here is a key motivation 
for why these leaders, these Pharisees, these Sadducees, why these Jewish leaders hated Jesus. And there are probably multiple reasons, but one reason I think stands out clearly here. Let me illustrate it before I make the point. Um, And I don't like to talk politics from the pulpit, and I don't do that, but a lot of times, would you agree that it seems like politicians oftentimes do what's best for themselves and not for the people they serve? Is that true or false? Probably true. I'm not saying all politicians are that way, of course, but it seems like many times people will do whatever they need to do to keep themselves in office and authority and in power. I think that's true. And that's very similar to what's happening here. Let me remind you, the people of Israel are free people, but they're also, they have been taken over by the Romans. And they were occupied by the Romans. And the Romans would allow people, when they conquered some nations, to have their own setup, have their own government, have their own leadership. And that's why these people like Caiaphas and these, these Pharisees and Sadducees, they're over the, they're there in the temple. They're, they're leading, they're leading in, in Israel. They're, they're nation leaders. But only as far as the Romans let them. And so as you read through this text, you notice there's one key verse that one key verse there. Can you find it? Let me find it. Verse 48, if we don't do something about this man, Jesus, everyone's going to believe in him. Which for us, we're like, great, we want people to believe in Christ. But for them, no. Why? The Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They were afraid that Jesus and his following, which is now beginning to grow, and especially since he just raised a man from the dead and, and the word's getting out, people are believing as his following were to grow, they're worried that that uprising in Israel would become such a distraction or such an issue, such a, dis, dis, a disruption of the status quo, that the Romans might say, you know what, we better go in there and do something about that. We better go squash whoever, whoever this man Jesus is, this leader and this uprising, we better go do something about it. That's what they're worried about. And they're worried that when that happens, these Jewish leaders like Caiaphas, would lose their power, their prestige, their authority. And so, is it any wonder they did eventually hear, actually just a few days from this section, are going to arrest and crucify Jesus? Because what length would they go to to keep their power? Any length. Now, you might say, well, he makes a good point there, right? You would rather one person die than a whole nation. That makes, that's a good point. That's fair, right? Well, maybe so, but not if that one person is the Messiah and is innocent, right? So Caiaphas in verses 49 and 50, a very pragmatic leader, he has this idea, and it's interesting because it says there, if you look at 49 and 50, he says, um, I like this word, he says, consider that it is expedient for us that one should die. And then in verse 51, it says he had prophesied that Jesus should die for the nation. Kind of interesting, right? He's thinking Jesus, this man's going to die for the nation that the Romans won't conquer. And he actually accidentally prophesied truth that Jesus would die for sinners. But I want you to see that this man was pragmatic, practical. He's trying to do what he thinks best for himself and maybe his nation. But in doing so, uh, 
we know he attacked the Savior, and he rejected Christ. Let me, let me give you an application. The first application of four today, and I'm taking it from the story of Caiaphas here. It's better to do the right thing than it is to do the easy thing. He was interested in, although obviously it wasn't easy, but what's easier for him or the selfish thing for him more than doing the right thing. To take an innocent man who's doing great works, teaching great works, and to want him to die is not the right answer. It's not the right thing. But Caiaphas wanted to do what he thought was best. And I want to apply that to us simply by saying every day we have decisions to make. Every single day all of us have decisions to make. Do I spend this day walking with the Lord or do I just do my own thing? Which sometimes can be easier in many ways. Do I want to spend a few minutes to read the word of God, which is the right thing, the better thing, or do I want to just skip it and go on about my life? Do I want to pray? Do I want to be a part of church family? Or do I just want to stay home and rest? Sometimes the easier thing for us is not always the best thing, is it? Oftentimes it's not. Oftentimes the harder thing is the, the best thing. I want to remind you this quote. I gave it to you. I remember giving you this maybe last year. Uh, I think it's up there. But always do the next right thing. No matter what happens at home, at work, as you argue with your spouse or your boss or a coworker, or maybe if you have an issue even with the church, can we make this our mantra? We want to always do the next right thing or say the next right thing. Galatians 6.10 says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are of the household of faith. Hebrews 13.16 says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So I want to take the story of Caiaphas, these leaders who wanted to get rid of Christ, and just remind us, life's not all about pragmatism. Life's not always about the easy thing. We need to do the right thing. Let's continue. Let's look at chapter 12. As we transition here into another chapter, look at chapter 12, verse 1. Let's go ahead and read 1 through 11. It says, So then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, Why was not this ointment sold for three hundred pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bear what was put therein. In other words, he helped himself to what was put in the bag. Then said Jesus, leave her alone. Against the day of my bearing hath she kept this. For the poor always you have with you, but me you have not always. Much people of the Jews therefore knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but they, that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death, because that by reason of him many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. So let's walk through some of these verses and some 
Uh, some very great, some great stuff here, great information, great inspiration, I hope, for us today. Uh, so we see in, in verse 1 that after, these, after chapter 11, Jesus leaves Bethany, this town a couple of miles from Jerusalem. Uh, he's gone for a short time, we don't know how long. But then he comes back to Bethany six days before the Passover. This is that Passover in which he will be arrested and crucified. Isn't that interesting? We have, we're in chapter 12. We have, what, eight or nine chapters left to go, and all of that's going to be the last week of his life. John spends about half the gospel on the last week of the, li- li- the, of the life of Christ. Um, and we're going to dive into that in the future weeks. But he comes back, and we see in verse 2 that Mary and Martha are hosting this dinner to honor Christ. We have to assume it's to honor him for what he has done you know, in their lives, and it's being such a bringing back Lazarus and being such a a friend to them, and I just, I was thinking about how, what must that have looked like if you're a guest and you walk in this house and you knew the story, you knew what had happened, and you see Mary, you see Martha working, you see Mary sitting here, you see Jesus sitting here, Lazarus, the man who was dead and rose again, and I mean, like, that would be a scene to go see, that would be an experience to, to have. And so I want to look at the people in this, in this section and I want to give you a, a few other applications. Uh, and so our second one is going to come from Martha. Now what does it say Martha was doing here in our text? Did you see it? In verse 2, what's she doing? She's serving. Now oftentimes when we see Martha in situations like this, that's what she's doing. She's a servant. There's other passages in the Gospels where Martha's serving. And Martha apparently loved to serve. She was a servant. Is being a servant a good thing? A servant of God, is that a good thing? Yeah. Paul often would start his letters like this. Paul, a servant or a slave of Jesus Christ. And we're told in the scripture as well to be servants of, of the Lord. But notice something. I'm going to show you this text up here from Luke 10. Another situation here, similar. Now as it happened, as they went their way, he entered into a certain village, that is Christ, and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who also sat at the Lord's feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about with much serving. And she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister did leave me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. The Lord answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is needful. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. So is serving bad? Is serving God bad? Was Martha so wrong in in serving God? That's a a good thing to do, right? We should all want to be servants of God. Well, let me give you the second application. We must not let our service distract us from the Savior. And we'll try to give some points on this. We know it's important to be a servant of God. We should be servants in our homes, in our lives, in our church. Many of you serve God in various ways. I'm thankful for all the different ways that many of you serve God, uh, even here uh, with our church. But I do wonder, and I think I've seen this in the past, if some people get so wrapped up in their serving that they forget that our first goal is to know and to love and to worship God. First. Now let's compare, well, before we compare, 
I was looking for an illustration. Sometimes you can go on Google. This is a preacher hack. And you can type in, Martha is a servant, sermon illustrations, click. And so the, these different things popped up. It was talking about people and so all these silly illustrations about people who serve God, but let that distract them from worship, uh, seeing Christ for who he is. But all those illustrations fell short. And I thought to myself, the best illustration is right here in the scripture. It's Martha. She's serving, she's serving, she's serving. She's in the presence of Christ, in the house where Christ is, doing all this work, thinking she's knocking it out of the park, I'm sure. And yet, she's not quite doing the right thing. She's missing something. Christ, let me tell you this, Christ is not a subject to be studied. He is a king to be loved. Christ is not a hobby to take up. He is a savior to be treasured. Christ is not a celebrity to be admired. He is to be honored as Lord over all. Jesus is not looking for fans. He's looking for true followers who love him, who know him, and who want to know him and love him more. And if we're not careful, we can let our acts of service for God, which are good and positive, we can let those distract us from truly worshiping the way we need to. Now, those acts of service are actually acts of worship. But what I'm saying is we can let that distract us from spending time with Christ the way we need to. In verse 3, we see, we see Mary, the contrast from Martha, we see Mary who takes this expensive oil, she sits at the feet of Christ, and she begins to anoint his feet. Other texts say she also anointed a little bit on his, with his head. And then she did something else interesting. She took her hair, took her hair down, which was not common then, took her hair down and used that to wipe his feet. Now, I know what you're thinking. If I come to visit you, are you going to take your hair down and wipe my feet? <laughs> Probably not, right? That's not our custom. But they would, often when visitors would come in, they would anoint them. They would wipe their feet. They'd been walking around with sandals on, dirty feet. It was a sign of respect and honor. But what Mary does here goes even further than the normal honoring of people. That she would use this expensive ointment. Many people say this ointment was so expensive, they based it on what Judas Iscariot says, was so expensive that it would be a working man's yearly wage. How much a man would make an entire year? And she took that stuff and poured it on Jesus' feet. Kind of crazy, right? That's kind of extreme. Like, that's some extreme worship. <laughs> that you're going to take your hair down, which is really not what you're supposed to do, and you're going to wipe a man's feet with it and pour out this expensive oil on him. Her worship was sincere and was serious, and, and some might say even extreme. Well, let's compare her to Martha. I think we had that slide up there a minute ago. Um, look at Mary. In three different texts, it says this. Luke 10, 39, Mary sat at Jesus' feet and learned. In John eleven thirty two, 32, Mary fell at Jesus' feet and surrendered. And then here in John 12, Mary anointed Jesus' feet and honored him. I'm going to give you my J.C. Ryle quote of the week. It's about this section. He says, sitting... At Christ's feet in days gone by, and hearing his words, she had found peace and pardon for her sins. At this very moment, she saw Lazarus alive and well, sitting by her master's side, her own brother Lazarus, 
whom he had brought back to her from the grave. Now listen to what he says. Greatly loved, she thought she could not show too much love in return. Having freely received, she freely gave. As you read verse 3 and other stuff we read about Mary, this Mary in the Gospels, is there any doubt this Mary loved Jesus? Her love for Christ is undeniable. And she showed it by just sitting in his presence, learning from him, and worshiping him in that way. I want, to, I want to remind you, church, to understand that when we say worship, we talk about the church worship, and I'm going to talk about that in a minute as far as coming together, corporate worship. But you and I both need something else besides just this. This is great. We need this. We need the church. We need to be together. But we, all, we also all need time where we sit at the feet of Christ, where we sit with this word open, where we sit and ponder, not just read, but ponder and study and look into the things he said and where we might pray. And, just have, and, and I think maybe we're lacking that in life. We're so distracted by so many things that we have time where we're sitting at the feet of Christ, where we might truly learn from him, where we might truly have, have moments of surrender and where we might honor him. So my third application is simply this. Worship, worship is a holy response to Christ. It's responding to Christ. It's worship is our response to God's revelation of himself. And so God shows us through his word, here's who I am. And we say, yes, Lord, we believe. And now all that we do and, and our acts of kindness, our moments of sitting in the word, our church stuff, all this is a response to the revelation of God. Mary's response is inspiring, and I hope it will be inspiring to us. I do want to say a word about our corporate worship, our Sunday morning worship, um, because we do talk about this as worship, worship time together, and it's a special time, and I look forward to this time every week as we join together to worship. But let me ask you guys a question. Have you ever left on Sunday morning, got in your car, pulled out of the road, and you're, you're with some, maybe you're with someone, or you're talking to yourself, have you ever said, you know what, worship was pretty good today? Have you ever said that? I said it last week. And I, was kinda, I think I was basing that on the fact that like, I just enjoyed myself, which I do most weeks. And last week I remember we had a really good crowd and everybody sang loud. I could hear the voices. It just, you know, I love that. Um, but have you ever pulled out or got home to eat lunch and thought, worship really wasn't that good today? We've, if we're honest, we've probably all done both of those. Worship's pretty good, worship wasn't good. And what we mean by that probably is it moved me or it didn't move me, it touched me or it didn't touch you, you know, touch me. And so I want to remind us this morning that when we come together to worship here, it's not about us being touched or pleased. We come here to worship and we're not the audience of worship. There's an audience of one. And the goal of this is that God might be pleased that our God might be honored, that our God might be praised in worship. Now, we're doing our best, and Jason's helped me with this, to pro provide the best service we can with music and, and our scripture readings and all these things and our sermons. But no matter what songs we sing, no matter if we raise our hands or bow our knees, our hearts need to be drawn near to the Lord. And we need to see 
what a good Sunday should look like. I put this out uh, last week. A good, how to know if you had a good Sunday with your church family. Is it based on how big the crowd was? I've told you all this story before. I went to a church. There was a lady, sweet lady. You remember the churches that used to have the old boards in the back that would tell you the, the attendance and the offering? And this lady would come out between Sunday school and service every morning, and she'd stand there and just stare at it, you know. And I always saw her do it. And so I, I would sometimes go over there and talk to her. And I could tell from talking to her, if the Sunday school attendance was low, she was like so discouraged and depressed. She's like, well, it's just not a good day. Not a good day today. We only had, you know, 55 or 85, whatever the number was in Sunday school. And I remember eventually saying to her, hey, I don't care what the board says. We're going, to, we're going to worship the Lord. Did you study the Bible in Sunday school? Yeah. You had a good day. Are you going to? Yeah. And so we can't let the, you know, how big the crowd is, how amazing the singing was, was there plenty of parking or not? All these things we might allow, but let me give you these points quickly. They're not up there. They're just right here. Here's how to know if you had a good Sunday. You ready? Here's how you can know if you have a good Sunday. Did the church gather purposefully? Did the church pray sincerely? Did the church sing joyfully? Did the church love freely? Did the church serve willingly? Did the church give sacrificially? Was God's word read reverently? Was God's word preached correctly? And was God's word received eagerly? This is how we know we had a good Sunday or not. Are we honoring Christ by gladly receiving his word and responding to it? Let me give you two directives for worship. And again, this, this, replies, this responds to, just like Mary did at the feet of Christ, also to our public worship here. Worship must be directed by Scripture. God's t God has already told us how to worship. We have to just follow what He says. And worship must be joyfully serious. Our church has a good time. Every time we come together, there's jokes and there's laughs. We can be on, and on Wednesday night, it happens especially. On Wednesday nights, we're just having a good time together. But it happens all the time. When people at the church get together, there's usually a good time to be had. But when we have our call to worship and turn ourselves toward the word and the worship, I'm glad, and I want us to even do better at this, that we can have this joyful seriousness about the Lord. We don't want people to come in and visit our church and be like, God is just, God is just another thing they're doing. He's just a really tiny part of their Sunday morning routine, then they go about their lives. We don't want people to think that. And so sometimes, if you, if you ever say, you know what, man, Kelby and Jason, they, they seem a little too serious, I would say to you, thank you. <laughs> we want to be serious about God. I was talking to my neighbor a couple weeks ago, and he, he's uh, been going to a Baptist church, but he said during COVID, he visited a different denomination, a completely different denomination that you and I would disagree with their theology pretty wholeheartedly. And, I, and he went, I don't even know why, but I think a friend invited him, and I guess maybe during COVID it was a church that was still, go, still having services. He went and he sat there, and he, he went week after week, um, and I was like, why would you go there? I know you disagree with their theology. He said, they had a seriousness about God I haven't seen in years. He said, even if they're misunderstanding some things about him, that seriousness just drew me in. I was like, wow, that's, that's interesting. But now he's back at a, you know, a Baptist church that's not as serious probably. But, but his point was well taken. That again, we want to be serious about God. Now, notice what I said, joyfully serious. 
doesn't mean we're always sad or always mad or angry. A joyful seriousness and holiness toward God. I had a preacher friend one time. He was my pastor for a time. He came to our church. He was new, and he would sit on the front pew or stand on the front pew there while I was doing the music and before he would preach, and he would just stand there with his eyes closed, and he would be praying like this. He'd kind of sway, holding his Bible, praying. He'd look at his notes. He'd pray. And I could tell when he first came, everybody was like, this guy's weird. This guy's, what's this guy doing? He's not singing like everybody else all the time. He's looking at his Bible. He's, he's kind of talking out loud to somebody. He's talking to somebody during church, but he was praying. He might would even sit down and just pray. And, and as I got to know him very shortly, I realized he was just a man that was very serious about God. A man I love, and I trust him. I love having him come preach here sometime maybe. But that seriousness that people might think is weird might be this kind of serious we need. So I pray God would lead us toward that. We need worshipers to come and worship. I say we, right? God doesn't need anything. But we need, as church, we need each other to come and worship together through all the different avenues of worship. But it begins, like Mary, sitting at his feet, being content to learn there. Look at verses 4 through 6. So I won't say a lot here, but we see Judas Iscariot come out and it's kind of interesting. In the backdrop of Mary's devotion to Christ, now we see the opposite, anti-devotion to Christ. Judas's negativity. So Judas, verse 4, and John just like calls them out. You know, here's the one that's about to betray Christ. Verse 5, Judas says, why didn't we sell this and give it to the poor? And again, some might say, well, he's got a good point. This is a very expensive ointment, very expensive oil. This could have helped a lot of poor people. Verse 6. John, by the way, who didn't know this now, he knew, that he, he knew this later when he, when he was inspired to write the scripture. He said Judas didn't care about the poor, did he? He was a thief. And he was going to take what was in that bag and, and use it for himself. Interestingly, that, G, that Judas, this is a side note, that Judas is so worried about the money and digging into the money bag of the disciples and yet, he's going to sell Jesus out for, what, 30 pieces later? Interesting how Judas is tied to money. Verse 7 and 8, Jesus responds. By the way, let me say this. I want to say this to you. Before we throw all our stones at Judas, the other gospel accounts say some of the disciples complained about it. Maybe a Wednesday night discussion. The other, the other gospels say it wasn't just Judas, but other disciples Complained. But John here is, points out Judas. Verse 7 and 8, Jesus says, leave her alone. Uh, she may keep that for the day of my burial. The poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Is the verse 8, is that Jesus saying the poor are not important? Clearly not, right? Obviously not. He helped the poor. He was the poor. He was poor in, in a human standpoint. But what he's saying is, I'm only going to be here a short amount of time. And what Mary is doing is good. She is worshiping me now while she has time. Leave her alone. Can you imagine Christ looking at you and saying, leave her alone? She's doing the right thing. In Mark 14, 9, listen to what it says. Assuredly, this is Jesus. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever my gospel is preached in the whole world, 
what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. And over and over again, for the last 2,000 years-ish, preachers have stood and preached about Mary worshiping Christ. And that's an inspiration. Her devotion is an inspiration to us, an example to us. Finally, let's go to verses 9 through 11. So we end kind of where we started. Remember, remember the context of what we're discussing here. I know I'm bringing out some application here, but remember the context. Many are believing. They go tell the chief priests. They go tell the Pharisees. Crowds are gathering. They're making these plans to, to get Jesus. But then verse 9 says when the crowds learn that Jesus was there and Judas was there, they want to come see him. Verse 10, it wasn't enough now just to go after Jesus. What's it say? They made plans to kill Lazarus as well. How could they, this is what's interesting, how could they refute his resurrection? People had saw it. He was dead for four days in the tomb. I think these leaders showed up like, what are we going to do here? What can we do? There's too many people believing, and if we don't stop it, everyone's going to believe. And again, it'll lead to our own destruction. What can we do? Verse 10, here's an idea. I can imagine the guy that said this, you know. Here's an idea. You know that guy that just died and Jesus rose him again? Let's go kill that guy. (laughs) Let's go kill that guy. I wonder if anybody said, uh, what if he just brings him back to life again? (laughs) Because Jesus could have, right? They have this, that's their plan. Let's go kill Lazarus because too many people are believing. He has become such a witness for Christ, such a testimony to the power of Christ, such a testimony to the deity of Christ that we have to do away with him. Verse 11 says that plainly. Many were going and believing in Jesus. These leaders, and this is no surprise to us who've been studying this, they would rather commit a murder than go, you know what? Maybe we're wrong. Maybe we're wrong. But they would rather commit a murder. Application number four, and this is our final one. Lazarus was an example. Lazarus was a witness. Verse 11 says, Many people came and believed in Christ. And I want to challenge you to continue to influence your crowd for Christ. The people in your home first, the people at your workplace, people in our church, in the community. Now Lazarus, what did Lazarus say in this this text? Look in chapter 11 and 12 and tell me what Lazarus said about Christ. Search your Bible. Look in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and see what Lazarus said about Jesus. See how many times he preached or did a Bible study or commented. I don't think Lazarus ever said anything that we have. Maybe I'm wrong, but y'all, yeah, if I'm wrong, we can check that later. But I don't believe Lazarus ever actually opened his mouth that we have recorded, although I do believe he opened his mouth. <laughs> but he was still a witness for Christ. And so... Number one, our lives can be a witness for Christ. We can be witnesses by how we live, how we act, how we do things. But number two, let me tell you, we must open our mouths for Christ. We have to. We must speak the truths of the Bible. We must speak about Christ as a treasure in our lives. If someone says to you, why do you go to church? Well, I just enjoy it down there. Good good people. Amazing preacher. 
No, don't say any of that. I'd rather you say, I love Jesus. And that's the church where I go and I, I get to hear about him. Point, it, point your conversations to Christ. I, I, you just got over a sickness. Man, what did you do? I know you were so sick. I know you get a bad report from the doctor. I just trust the Lord's going to be there. Point it to the Lord. Point it to Christ. We need to point to the one who is the resurrection and the life. These leaders are ready to kill him. They're ready to kill Jesus. And they think by killing Jesus, they're going to save others. And what they don't realize is they're actually right. Because in just a few days, just a few days, this Christ, this all-powerful Savior, the resurrection and the life, in just a few days, is going to willingly lay down his life for all those whom God has chosen before the foundation of the world. And so church, we must tell people, if they reject Christ, if you reject Christ, you will incur the wrath of God and eternal condemnation. But if you will believe in Christ and receive him by faith, though you die, you shall live. Let me review our points with you. Number one, it's better to do the right thing than it is to do the easy thing. May we do the right thing, the godly thing, the thing that points to Christ, the thing that's holy. Number two, do not let your service for God distract you from your worship of the Savior. Number three, worship is a holy response to Christ. And number four, may all this help us to go out in this world and influence people for Christ. That's what it's about, right? Coming here to learn and love and worship and then going out there to just serve and witness. Let's pray.